from the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Buckle Up or Not, we discuss managing stage four ROP. Any retinal break essentially dooms the eye to blindness because it's impossible to close those retinal breaks interoperatively nor take traction off. First this, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Sears declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. As seen from here, the first podcast for physicians, the first podcast to offer CME credit, and the first to offer multinational editions is now co-sponsored by the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. The ASCRS recognizes the power of this new medium in communication and education of physicians everywhere. This partnership will allow us to bring new content to you and add new voices to our community. From Manhattan to Mumbai, from the Bay Area to Beijing, one conversation as seen from here. The management of retinal detachment is always beset with risk. How much higher are the stakes when the patient is a child? Jonathan Sears, who spoke to us about treating submacular hemorrhages with TPA, joins me today to talk about surgery for stage 4 ROP. Jonathan, as a refresher, can I get you to briefly go over the ICROP staging of ROP? Oh, the ICROP staging? Yeah, if you don't mind. No, no problem. Uh, basically... Uh, you categorize uh, ROP based on the location of the vascularized retina, which is zone, and uh, also on the stage of ROP. So zone is essentially uh, categorized into three zones, zone one, zone two, and zone three. Zone one is uh, essentially a circle that is centered on the disc whose uh, radius is twice the distance from the um, disc to the fovea. So the diameter would be four times the distance from the disc to the fovea. Zone two then would be uh, a circle that is contiguous with the nasal or serrata and it extends in an equal radius temporally. And then zone three is essentially that temporally vascular crescent. And in terms of practical uh, use of this, is if you can uh, look with a 28 diopter lens and put the disc in one corner of the lens using an indirect ophthalmoscope and then the other uh, corner into uh, a vascularized retina, then that becomes zone one, essentially. And then we stage uh, the severity of ROP essentially based on certain ophthalmoscopic findings. Uh, stage one is a flat demarcation line between vascular retina and avascular retina. Zone two is an elevation of that demarcation line into a ridge. You mean stage two? Stage, yes, stage two, exactly. And then stage three is neovascularization on the ridge, very important, not posterior to the ridge, but on the ridge, which can, is a visualized as either uh, tiny capillary uh, buds as they come up into the vitreous or actually a fibrovascular membrane that uh, exists on the ridge, which is also known as extra-retinal proliferation. Then stage four is a retinal detachment, which... Uh, uh, stage 4A does not involve the fovea, and 4B, which involves the fovea, 
And stage five, of course, is a, is a complete renal detachment. Jonathan, what is threshold? Threshold, as is, as is defined by um, the uh, cryorop study, which is now almost, I guess, a quarter of a century old, is uh, five uh, contiguous clock hours of neovascularization or stage three in zone two with four quadrants of plus disease. Plus disease is, is the dilatation of the uh, venous side of the circulation at the optic nerve head or eight non-contiguous hours with four quadrants of plus disease in zone two or less. That uh, concept has been changed now by the early treatment retinopathy prematurity study, which essentially uh, examined uh, whether or not early laser would be a benefit in uh, improving the outcomes of uh, laser treatment for threshold retinopathy prematurity by uh, treating kids with pre-threshold retinopathy, which is to say um, any plus disease in zone 2 or zone 1, any neovascularization uh, in zone 1. And this is now, and this is now it's important because it's any, not, you know, total clock hour numbers. Uh, or uh, plus disease in zone 2 uh, with or without neovascularization based on whether or not it was uh, stage 2 or stage 1. And in a nutshell, what they showed is that uh, you can reduce the unfavorable outcomes by about 7 or 8% from, I'd say, 15% down to 9% by treating kids earlier with laser. And a simple way to really remember it without all the jargon is that if you see a child with plus disease in zone 1 or zone 2, uh, you can uh, consider laser treatment. Which children are at greatest risk for stage 4 for retinal detachment? Yeah, I think the kids that are at greatest risk for uh, risk for stage uh, for detachment are those kids which are at greatest risk for developing threshold disease, uh, which is uh, children that are born at an early gestational age and low birth weight, and that of course is related to the fact that the uh, younger the child is born and the lower the birth weight, the greater the chance of uh, avascular retina being a greater portion of their of their fundus. And the reason for this is because the it's the avascular retina that uh, is prompted to secrete uh, an exaggerated um, response to ischemia, which is a larger uh, secretion of vascular epithelial growth factor. There's, you know, there's that issue, of course, lower birth rate, lower gestational age, and then children who are uh, septic, especially children that become infected with uh, fungal organisms such as Canada. Uh, there's other risk factors which are just sort of uh, most recently been elucidated which is uh, those children who are born at low birth weight, low gestational age, and then seem to do quite well and that they start putting on weight very rapidly, you know, by uh, increasing their uh, body weight daily. Those children are also at risk for some reason, if you will, for developing uh, threshold disease. For those children with stage 4, what is the mechanism by which the retinal detachment occurs? Yeah, well, there's really two forces. One is an exudativeness component because... Uh, children that have a high concentration of VEGF in the vitreous cavity end up being very vasodilated, so their uh, vessels leak, and a lot of this fluid accumulates in the subretinal space. It, it probably accumulates directly from retinal vessels and also from probably dilatation of choroidal vessels as well. I don't, I don't know the answer to that exactly. Um, and the second force is a tractional force, which is whereby... Uh, the vitreous uh, contracts around these neovascular buds that extend into, into the vitreous cavity and cause uh, pulling of the retina uh, towards the lens, you know, an AP traction, 
and then also uh, in a purse string type of circumferential traction on the ridge. And then finally, there's a, another type of traction which is difficult to appreciate until you operate on these kids, which is a traction around the, um, uh, from the vitreous cavity along Cloquet's canal, but uh, sort of these vitreous fibers that are tangentially pulling from the posterior cortical vitreous along the axis of the um, you know, central vitreous stalk. How is stage four treated conventionally? It's actually, at this point, it's, I would say it's controversial. There's a number of us that believe that uh, early intervention into a 4A detachment uh, by lens-bearing vitrectomy is uh, beneficial for children. Uh, there are other people who believe that uh, 4A detachments can be, uh, on the large part, benign and should be observed until they progress. And at that point, they should, uh, you know, have surgical intervention. But I think if you at, if you asked uh, the majority of ROP people, um, they would probably suggest that early intervention is better than waiting because fixing a 4A detachment is generally easier than a 4B detachment, which is uh, absolutely easier than fixing a, 4A, uh, a stage 5 detachment. Especially when you look at the visual outcomes, I think that the largest series um, is from, you know, the Beaumont group with uh, uh, Mike Tracy and uh, Tony Capone, where they absolutely have, you know, shown that you can get very good visual acuities uh, in children that have undergone lens-bearing vitrectomies you know, at least 2060. So, it, and if these detachments progress to a stage five, although, you know, in some people's hands, uh, the uh, rate of reattachment is relatively good, at least, you know, better than 50% or as high as 80%, the visual outcomes are relatively dismal where, um, you know, the best uh, outcome would be sort of a measurable grading visual acuity and maybe 10% of these children that have uh, successful stage five retinal reattachment. That's not to diminish the importance of getting some vision to these children, even if it be, you know, hand motion or even poor, because uh, having, you know, some form of you know, visual recognition and timing of circadian rhythms is probably important to these kids, especially if you compare that to no light perception. Some of these kids are treated with scleral buckle. What mechanical role does scleral buckle play? Yeah, it's an, it, it, yeah, it's an interesting question. I think... Um, you know, scleral buckle was originally uh, applied because of uh, well, a number of reasons. One is the thought was that if you place the buckling element, you know, at or close to the ridge, because often the ridge can be very, you know, posterior, uh, that you relieve the circumferential traction by indenting the wall of the eye. You know, there's a, you know, automatically there's sort of a, a thought that this is incorrect because, uh, uh, first and foremost, that these detachments are not regmatogenous. They are regmatogenous. They're very difficult to repair because it's impossible to relieve the traction on the uh, retinal breaks that may develop. So if you're using a, in a uh, device, if you will, uh, uh, an explant that is uh, originally designed to cure regmatogenous retinal detachment, it really doesn't make much sense to use the same device to cure an exudative or tractional detachment. However, um, in combination with uh, vitrectomy, uh, certainly uh, vitreous surgeons know that the cleanest way to do a vitrectomy is to elevate the posterior hyaloid and to use that as a guide to complete a vitrectomy out to the retinal periphery. In children who suffer from ROP, it's very difficult to elevate the hyaloid in uh, some or most circumstances. And so because of that, uh, knowing that the hyaloid is left behind, there's vitreous elements that remain. Uh, 
original thought might be that if you combine this with a lens firing vitrectomy, you may support those residual elements and hence enhance the success of the of vitrectomy surgery itself. And an analogous um, example would be, uh, you know, in adults, when a you repair a retinal detachment, you do a good vitrectomy, but you know that in some circumstances there's vitreous remaining either because the patient is phagic or the patient's had a history of uveitis or another disorder in which the high load is very adherent or in you know younger people, then the thought is that you would want to ensure the success of your vitrectomy surgery by perhaps placing a buckle at the same time. Prior to this study, prior to your study, had combination therapy, lens-bearing vitrectomy and sclerobuckle been examined? You know, it really hasn't. I think Eric Holtz may have had a uh, Arvo abstract on this. Uh, he's a very busy surgeon in uh, uh, Houston, so he has a, a large volume. Um, I know that he looked at the combination of these uh, two surgeries in an abstract form, and I'm not exactly sure what his conclusion was, whether he thought it was helpful or not. The um, reason that we put this study together was actually because I had thought that um, you know, it's a certain starting out, you know, treating kids with RLP that, gee, um, because the high is not elevated, I'd like to have that extra sense of guarantee, if you will, that we can keep these retinas on by combining a buckle with a vitrectomy. And so uh, as the literature evolved and people started publishing their uh, outcomes on lens sparing vitrectomy alone, I think the first person to do that was um, Tony and Mike, uh, you know, Tony Capone and Mike Tracy. They had a very high rate of retinal attachment, better than 90%, I think as high as 94%, in 4A detachments alone. And so when that paper came out, I started changing my philosophy about using um, both buckle and vitrectomy. So we had an unusual cohort of uh, kids. It's difficult in a pediatric study to randomize people because, you know, you want to do everything humanly possible to preserve vision, especially in RLP. It's equally as difficult. Um, and so we had this interesting uh, collection of patients whereby the first early years of my uh, surgery on these 4A and 4B detachments in which I had a buckle and a vitrectomy, a place to buckle and performed lens sparing vitrectomy. And then as I read the literature and saw that, in fact, people were getting great results with vitrectomy alone, I omitted uh, the buckle and then compared an equal number of patients uh, in which I performed lens sparing vitrectomy without buckle. And the, the nice thing about the study is it's a you know single surgeon, same technique and vitrectomy in both uh, cases. Jonathan, what was the question that your study sought to answer? Well, I wanted to know whether or not a scleral buckle in conjunction with lens sparing vitrectomy uh, improves the rate of retinal reattachment. Can I get you to describe in a little more detail what the design of the study was? Yeah, well, essentially this is, you know, we have a very nice uh, ROP database that I've maintained uh, at the Cleveland Clinic since I've been there since '98. So essentially, this was a it was a retrospective interventional uh, consecutive case series. You know, there's not a huge number of patients in this, but it's an important number of patients because they were um, uh, again, as I mentioned, it's an interesting cohort of patients that had buckle vitrectomy consecutively, and then an additional set of patients that had only vitrectomy consecutively. And if you take all these patients, they were, they were essentially all the patients that were treated um, who underwent lens sparing vitrectomy, and I found that uh, nearly half of them had a scleral buckle and nearly half of them didn't. And so it made a nice collection of patients, uh, unique collection of patients, if you will, that were um, 
had only one perturbation to their management, which was that um, one, one half of them had scleral buckle and half of them didn't. Now, they weren't randomized, uh, but the decision to use a scleral buckle was really a, a historical one. It was something that I did originally uh, in my uh, surgical technique, and then I abandoned as I um, came to find that others had published and demonstrated that a vitrectomy surgery alone had a very high rate of success uh, in upwards of you know at least 85%, which is pretty good outcomes for these children with RLPs and attachments. Were the two populations, uh, those who had the buckle and those who did not, were they comparable in the extent of the retinal detachment? Yeah, yeah. Actually, you know, the the characteristics of them were essentially equivalent within uh, you know standard deviation of each other. Uh, they are all within the same birth weight, all within you know the same average gestational age. Uh, essentially, the birth weights range from about I'd say 330 grams to 1,100 grams, with an average of you know 751 grams, median of age 16. Um, gestational age at birth ranged anywhere from 21 weeks, which you can imagine a very you know, young child, to 30 weeks, with an average of 25 weeks, again, a median of about 26 weeks. And then the gestational age at time of surgery was also relatively equivalent, all between 36 to 46 weeks, with an average at 42 weeks, and median at 40 weeks. And this is essentially, if you look at the other papers that have been published on uh, Stage four vitrectomy, be it 4A or 4B. Uh, Baker Hubbard has a nice series on this. Uh, Eric Holtz has a nice series on this. Um, again, Mike and Tony have a nice series. This is generally what we find uh, for all these kids when they come to surgery, which is that they'll generally, you know, require surgery if they're going to detach uh, just uh, before or around their uh, corrected gestational age of birth. You know, the, the due date, so to speak. And, you know, all these characteristics were very similar to uh, what I found in my, my kids. Jonathan, I don't do retina surgery. Can I have you walk me through a typical lens sparing vet? Sure. You know, there's uh, different ways to do it. You know, to begin with, I'll tell you how I do it and compare it to how other people do it. I use a two-port vitrectomy. I use something called a Capone light pick, which is a uh, end infusion, uh, end irrigating uh, light source that has a, uh, a 45 degree bend to the um, uh, pick at the end of it. Uh, in order to uh, perform the surgery, we use obviously general anesthesia with a dedicated uh, pediatric anesthesia staff. Um, often the surgery is done bilaterally, you know, because it's uh, uh, anesthetic risk to take these kids to the operating room and also timing is important because you want to get to these detachments early. Uh, you make a uh, relaxing conjunctival incision in the uh, lateral aspect of the both the medial and uh, uh, lateral canthus. And then uh, I retract that conjunctiva with a 7-0 vicral suture, make a, uh, essentially a limple based or for, excuse me, a fornisk based flap. And then the incisions that are made with it, I use a 20-gauge system. They're made with an MVR blade that's uh, one and a half millimeters posterior to the surgical limbus. That's very close to the lens. And, of course, you want to you keep these lenses clear. So the, um, the incision that's made with the MVR blade is typically a little bit steeper than it's made in adults. You know, so you, you make the, I make the um, nasal uh, incision first, one and a half millimeters posterior to the surgical limbus with a 20-gauge MVR blade and insert the uh, end irrigating Capone light pick uh, into the eye and then turn it on. I usually have the 
a pressure toggling anywhere from uh, 30 to 60 millimeters of mercury because um, it requires a little bit higher infusion in these kids as you're doing the vitrectomy because their vitreous is very well formed and also the uh, capone pick, uh, at least using the Acris uh, machine, you tend to have to run the pressure a little bit higher than you would with an adult. And then making the temporal sclerotomy, again, one half millimeters posterior to the surgical limbus, a little bit steeper than you would on an adult. You use the uh, uh, Acuris probe. And the first step is to really uh, do a central core uh, vitrectomy where you can prolapse then peripheral vitreous centrally. Uh, often it's helpful to turn the cut rate down to a slower rate than you would in an adult, to perhaps 400 cuts. Um, and the reason is that uh, the vitreous is so much, you know, denser in these children that it's difficult to get it into the uh, vitreous cutter. Now, if the hyaloid can be elevated, it's after taking that central core gel out that we usually try to elevate uh, the hyaloid. You can do that with a high vacuum uh, with both the uh, bimanual technique using the, uh, the, the light pick, uh, as I mentioned, and also suction. Another uh, tip that works pretty well is to use a cautery. Uh, to actually engage the posterior hyaloid with a very fine tip cautery, which can be used to elevate it. And the most important feature is that if the hyaloid is going to come up, that's great. If it isn't, then I really don't, you know, suffer or sweat trying to elevate the hyaloid for fear of tearing the retina. Um, after doing a, a very careful core vitrectomy, I use something called a, uh, a 23 gauge NPC or membrane peeler cutter. I do that to make sure that if the hyaloid is not elevated, I sever that stalk of gel, which comprises cloquase canal, using the cutter, and then move to the ridge itself where I take the um, uh, 23-gauge NPC and cut along the ridge for 360 degrees to sever any of the uh, anterior-posterior vitreous sheets that you can clearly see uh, from their attachment to uh, either the lens or the retrolenticular space. And once that's done, I go back again to the vitreous cutter and then use that cutter along the ridge, anterior to the ridge, and posterior to the ridge to remove as much gel as, as humanly possible, taking care to make sure that the vitrectomy is done very safely because any retinal break essentially dooms the eye to blindness because it's impossible to close those retinal breaks interoperatively nor take traction off them. And the, uh, another way of uh, essentially ensuring this is to make sure that the cutter is uh, always facing the tissues that you're uh, trying to uh, remove and to making sure that you use a high-speed cutter as well so that when you're working close to the ridge, you don't inadvertently you know, take a piece of retina with you. Um, in order to get out of the eye, then go to air and so that the eye stays inflated because closing these sclerotomies can be very difficult. Um, it's also important um, midway through the surgery to change hands, and that's also a trick. You need to have an assistant who uh, has a, a plug ready to uh, plug up the uh, sclerotomies as you uh, exchange hands. The lens system that we use is uh, a Volk uh, 23 gauge, excuse me, a Volk uh, pediatric uh, wide-angle lens viewing system that's uh, held by a, a skilled assistant. Uh, some people use the biome, which uh, means they don't need an assistant, but I like this folk system. It's, it's really nice. Even um, with the eye in primary position, uh, you can actually pass your instruments into the retinal lenticular space and 
reach the ridge on the opposite side of the eye without hitting the lens. So the wide-angle lens showing system is really important in, in this regard. And then to close the eye again, we go to air so that the eye stays firm. We uh, plug up the sclerotomies as we're leaving, and then um, close the sclerotomies with 7-0-Vicryl in a typical, you know, standard projectomy uh, closure. And then close the conjunctiva with the residual vicryl piece that we've used to tend to open. Once more to emphasize the point, the role that iatrogenic retinal breaks play in these patients is quite different from the role that it plays in adults. Yeah, very, very critically, because uh, the fundamental rule of all vitrectomy surgery is to make sure that there's no traction on any retinal breaks, and you do that by elevating the hyoid completely and removing uh, uh, the hyoid away from uh, any retinal tears. Uh, certainly, if it's a PVR case, making sure there's no traction on those tears from any epiretinal membranes or subretinal membranes. In a pediatric case, such as an ROP, it's impossible to completely delaminate the hyoid. Uh, if you do, uh, there's always a risk of creating retinal tears. Now, in some stage 5 detachments, it's actually a lot easier to, to uh, elevate that hyoid sometimes than it is in stage 4 because you can actually elevate that hyoid further um, from the disc along the ridge than you can in stage 4. In stage 4, you really can elevate that hyoid to the ridge and no further. The point being that if you pull too hard on the hyoid, you're going to tear the retina. What do you think vitrectomy is doing in these eyes? Is it just relieving traction? Yeah, no, no, not at all. I mean, actually, this is really where the controversy comes in, and that is that I think the first and foremost thing it's doing is a vegfectomy, if you will. By debulking the vitreous and removing the vitreous in these early detachments, you remove the cytokine that is um, causing contraction of the vitreous and causing vasodilatation and prolonged development of these retinal vessels, even past laser. And the reason for that is that VEGF is sort of autocatalytic in that a cell secretes VEGF and then some of that VEGF actually goes and binds its own cell surface receptors, which then uh, activate uh, you know, a host of uh, transcription factors that then uh, further uh, excite the cell to produce more VEGF. Uh, for instance, um, glial cells have VEGF receptors on them endothelial cells have VEGF receptors on them, and uh, these receptors actually, uh, once simulated by VEGF, cause the cell to secrete more VEGF. So by interrupting that, you know, tail, uh, the dog biting its tail, if you will, I think you can decrease the amount of VEGF that's not only synthesized, but VEGF that's present. VEGF in the vitreous cavity probably is, you know, alive and well for about 48 hours. So you, you can't suggest that it's, you know, just the same VEGF that was secreted early in the course of the disease that's exacerbating this problem. It's got to be, you know, new new VEGF that's synthesized. And, you know, I'll just carry this further. The, the other thing, of course, is that it's relieving AP traction and uh, helping, if you will, the circumferential traction that is, uh, you know, makes these, you know, retinas collapse into a sort of purse-string configuration. Jonathan, what were your findings from this study? Yeah, we um, we found that the, uh, at least within statistical significance, if you will, which is uh, hard to do in a study that has so few patients, you know, um, that we found that uh, children who underwent lens-bearing vitrectomy alone had an equal success rate to those children who for, uh, who underwent lens-bearing vitrectomy with scleral buckle in stage 4 detachment, which include, you know, equal numbers of 4A and 4B detachments. And so it you know, based on this, I'd recommend that 
uh, if a child suffers a stage 4A or 4B detachment at the time of the initial surgery, which is at the time of their lens sparing vitrectomy, that that be performed alone without adjuvant scleral buckle. A couple of important points. One is the study did not address whether or not buckle following lensectomy would have improved the rate of success. Uh, that's, you know, I think an important point. Uh, some people who have uh, failed a stage 4B detachment uh, surgery or 4A surgery, uh, you wonder whether or not a buckle would help them, and I didn't look at that. I just know, I can tell you that placement of the buckle simultaneously really doesn't help the success rate. The second issue is that the most important thing about treating these children is the timing of the surgery. You know, a lot of people who do ROP surgery seem to be the ones who, at least uh, if they're screening and, and treating primarily with laser, they're also the, the folks that get the least rate of retinal detachment because they know how difficult it is to fix these kids. So if um, uh, you are a pediatric ophthalmologist or retina specialist who has the privilege of uh, screening children in a neonatal intensive care unit and finds that uh, there's a threshold child and that child is treated appropriately with laser, if if they notice vitreous condensation, which is a term that's been um, promoted by David Coates, if they notice vitreous condensation uh, with or uh, retina that begins to elevate or uh, an eye that just plain doesn't look good after laser, in other words, there's uh, vasodilatation and continued neovascularization and proliferation, then that should also be re referred, you know, immediately, and that's within two to three weeks. If uh, a laser is performed and then someone adds more laser and then, you know, a month goes by and six weeks and then the patient is referred for surgery, the prognosis is, I would uh, consider, extremely poor as compared with referring that child for vitrectomy surgery immediately. Those are two important points. Again, uh, there, it's nothing that's proven, but it's a philosophy now that a 4A detachment is easier to fix than a 4B detachment, which is easier to fix than a stage 5, and these things progress rapidly. And uh, after laser is applied, if there's any suspicion of the retinas beginning to elevate or not quiet down, if you will, then that child should be referred within two to three weeks uh, post-laser. It's very important. What do you do in your own practice? Do you ever perform scleral buckle either with or without vitrectomy in these patients? You know, I, I don't. And, I, and the reason is you know, I used to and, until we looked at this data and found out that we were just as successful with, uh, you know, lens-sparing vitrectomy um, as we are with the combined practice. And the reason is that um, I think there's a lot of disadvantages to the scleral buckle. Number one, the buckle can push vitreous into the ret retrolenticular space, which is exactly what you don't want. Uh, second, that buckle has to be removed at at least six months of life, which requires a second surgery because you need to have the eye, you know, grow and develop up until the second, you know, two years of life. Three, uh, and this I don't have any proof for, but it's a, a, a best guess that when you have a buckle and you do proper invocation, that um, you may induce a local ischemia of the choroid around the buckle sutures, which could exacerbate digestive secretion. So in general, I think, you know, less is always more. And if you avoid, you know, prolonging the surgery with a scleral buckle, you avoid the risks of the buckle and also avoid those other arguments, which are purely you know, hypothetical, that, um, you know, you may benefit the patient better by just lens-sparing vitrectomy alone. Jonathan, is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, well, it's, it, as, you, as you mentioned, anything with uh, ROP is really uh, pithy. You know, it's, it's 
short and sweet because uh, patient numbers are usually pretty low and the um, questions that are pretty basic that are asked and not very complex. Now, RLP is just a fascinating, you know, field because I think all of us that uh, treat RLP, again, and I'll use the word, have the privilege of treating these kids, uh, always wonder why it is that some NICUs have fantastic outcomes with a very low rate of threshold RLP, whereas other NICUs have a very high rate. And, we, and we're seeing this now, you know, worldwide. Um, I had the pleasure of going to Mexico and um, uh, doing exams down there and, you know, talking to RLP doctors there, and they sort of imply that there's a genetic basis to the poor outcomes with these children, and it's, it's probably not factual. I think the most important feature of what makes, you know, one population do better than another, or one NICU do better than another, is the way that the oxygen levels are monitored and the way they're um, delivered to these kids. And what we're finding, at least in our NICUs here in Cleveland, is that if during the early phase of RLP, the oxygen centers, or excuse me, during the early phases of the child's life, the oxygen levels are set a little bit lower than what is traditionally predicted. Whereas during the later stages of the child's life, those oxygen levels are set a little bit higher. We can uh, reduce the risk of threshold retinopathy prematurity. So what this means is I think we're going to be entering an era where we'll be able to treat this medically. And not just through anti-VEGF agents, but just through a more intelligent way of uh, managing these children systemically so that we can uh, allow the retinas to grow in an organized, sequential fashion without the uh, exaggerated release of VEGF that promotes this sight-threatening disease. Jonathan Sears, thank you very much. Oh, anytime. Jonathan Sears is Associate Staff in the Division of Cell Biology and Ophthalmology at the Cole Eye Institute in the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. His paper, Anatomic Success of Lens-Sparing Vitrectomy with and Without Scleral Buckle for Stage 4 Retinopathy of Prematurity, appears in the May 2007 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Sears or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.